Karma is um, an exceedingly central concern in uh, the Dharma, the Buddha's teachings. Uh, most of us have heard the word, and we have a vague idea that a lot of us believe that it has something to do with what goes around comes around, or something like that. Uh, that if you act unskillfully, in some way you'll be repaid in kind. Karma is more than just a causal law. It's actually in uh, spiritual practice. It's a kind of a refuge. It's a resource. It's a guiding principle in life. It's a way of orienting ourselves with other people. It serves so many purposes. Um, especially given the fact that Buddhism could be considered to be an atheist spiritual tradition in the sense that while the Buddha never said that gods don't exist but it's very clear that he taught that gods even if they do exist cannot rescue us from our suffering that suffering is something that is largely a concern of how we use our own minds and how we act and that rather than look towards a god or a deity to uh, heal our emotional wounds and undo our guilt or shame or uh, repair the damages in life that it's our responsibility in some way to address. So to step in and take the place of where in most spiritual paths God as a kind of Santa Claus plays a role. If you're good, you get ice cream and you get to go to heaven. And if you're bad, you don't get ice cream, I gather. And you, uh, you go to hell. So, um, to step into that, to create a kind of moral foundation for life, and a sense of uh, order to the way we interpret the universe, uh, karma is essentially a central concern. So karma is uh, actually, to be clear, uh, the word actually means action. Results is the word vipaka. We talk about karma, we never talk about vipaka, but actually uh, vipaka, vipaka is the end results of your actions. Some people believe that karma is the central factor that uh, authors your future rebirths. So the way you act in this life is, pays uh, and determines what quality of life or experience you'll have in a future rebirth. Uh, some have a more kind of mechanistic view that karma means what goes around comes around in this life. And then some of us, you can guess which group I fall into, uh, if you've ever heard me talk, uh, have a very psychological understanding and interpretation um, of it, which is not based on rebirth, 
but is entirely based on uh, the role that our actions play in our future mental states. So if it's not clear, I fall into the latter category. But I don't want to say that my interpretation is the right one. In fact, uh, one of my teachers, the wonderful and uh, brilliant Noah Levine, is a fervent believer in rebirth, which is why driving with him is so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm driven in a car with Noah. He has one of those cars that have the, the four hydraulic things so he can make it sort of go up and down. And we drove across the uh, Williamsburg Bridge to go to um, uh, a rap show about 12 years ago together. And uh, uh, I was never more terrified in my entire life. He was going like 70 across the bridge and tailgating. And he looked over at me and he said, you know, Josh, if you believed in rebirth, this wouldn't be as terrifying for you. And I said, well, I don't. So please stop what it is you're doing right now. So um, the strict causation of rebirth is found in a lot of suttas. In uh, the Kula Kamavibhanga, number 135, the Buddha says, is asked, what is the reason that some people live short lives, others live long lives, some are sick while others are healthy, some born poor while others rich? Why superiority and inferiority? And the Buddha replies, friends, beings are the owners of their actions. Karma differentiates beings according to their previous lives. So he's saying in that instance a very kind of causal chain over rebirth can be expected. Likewise, um, in the Vipaka Sutta, Friends, the intentional taking of life or stealing or extreme sexual misconduct leads to a living hell, then leads to rebirth as a common animal or a hungry ghost. A hungry ghost is a being with a big belly and a very thin, long throat and a tiny little mouth, so no matter how hungry it gets, it can't fill itself up. It's a terrible plane of existence. So, again, in these suttas, the Buddha is very clearly saying that there's a causal role of karma across uh, births. And there are other sort of what goes around, comes around suttas, like the salt crystal. And there are suttas where karma is open to interpretation. Uh, the Buddha, in the great Kalama Sutta, where he says, don't believe what I say, see for yourself what is true, and follow your own experience. And in that sutta he says, if there is a world after death, to live causing harm would lead to a bad, to live without causing harm would lead to a good destination. But if there is nothing after death, then in this present life one would live with ease, free of agitation. So he's giving here license to, for people like me, non-rebirthy Jewish doubters. Um, and if evil actions do not bring about misfortune, then at least my mind will be purified. So he's saying it's just giving us 
a sense that in some way the moral quality of our actions in some way will have some repercussions in our um, state of mind in the future. I have never in my experience ever had any memories of a previous life. I've never seen any scientific foundation that consciousness can survive without a brain or a body. And so I am what would be called a single life Buddhist. And one laugh. I don't know. That's, that's great. <laughs> it wasn't actually a joke, but I'm glad I got a laugh anyway. Um, I, I am skeptical to say the least. I like to form my spiritual path from what I've experienced and what I've seen to be true. Uh, furthermore, in this world, I've seen that there's a lot of people like Donald Trump's and Dick Cheney's who seem to get away with a lot of crap. The fact that they, as far as I can tell, do not uh, pay any material consequences in terms of wealth or power, that understanding of karma I find less attractive. But the understanding of karma that it influences the quality of our mental state, our internal state, is in some way authored by our actions and the way we use our mind. I find that very, very trustworthy. I deeply believe when I listen to those people, well, I don't try to, but when their snippets of their words are uh, replayed, I deeply feel that they are living in hellish minds that are authored by their actions. But I have also a greater foundation than just that kind of anecdotal. Um, there's actually now a great amount of clinical and scientific research that justifies a psychological reading of karma. Matthew Lieberman and Naomi Eisenberger, who are uh, founders of social cognitive uh, psychology and, and social neuroscience have shown that the brain uses the exact same three circuits, the somatosensory insula and dorsal cingulate, to cause emotional pain after we've done something that separates ourselves from other people. It uses the same three circuits to create physical pain when we've injured ourselves. The exact same neural circuits are there to uh, essentially create emotional discomfort during times where we've acted in antisocial ways or we've experienced ostracization. Um, they write in their papers, The Pains and Pleasures of Social Life, the brain's social pain system piggybacked onto the physical pain system during evolution, borrowing the same signals to indicate broken social bonds. So what they're saying is that just as much as pain is deeply neurally embedded and wired for us to feel, so is emotional pain when we disconnect, when we act in a way that causes uh, a harmful breach of relations with other people. This is because human beings, we survive based on our ability to connect. We don't run fast, we don't swim fast, we don't climb trees well. Our entire survival 
is based upon our ability to connect and form alliances. And so our ancestors, the ones that connected well, that bonded and were trustworthy and acted in pro-social ways, were rewarded with good neural rewards, whereas positive neural rewards, whereas those that acted in antisocial ways were in some way neurally set up to feel uncomfortable. The Department of Psychology at Munich, nine different psychologists in a paper called The Neurobiological Underpinnings of Shame and Guilt found that there are deeply ingrained neural circuits that create feelings of shame and guilt after we take pro-antisocial actions. The Oxford study of social exclusion found that the inevitable result of social disconnection is low serotonin production. Low serotonin creates worrying, insomnia, and compulsivity. The psychologists John, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Sandra Leibomorsky have shown that positive emotional states are directly linked to pro-social actions, and they've developed a moral foundations theory, which is that innate and universally available psychological systems are the foundation of our ethics. In other words, it's not socially founded, it's ingrained neurally. Our long evolution as mammals with attachment systems underlies our kindness, our gentleness, and our nurturing qualities. Paul Bloom and Karen Wynn have what I think is possibly the worst job I've ever heard. It's called, they do clinical research with babies. They hang out all day long with babies. And they wrote a book called Just Babies. <laughs> but they found that babies have moral reactions. They don't understand why they have moral reactions, but they have them. Babies, on, in, their, in quotes, respond on a gut level. They smile and clap when they're shown good events, and they frown and look sad during naughty events. The study they did, they showed little babies, a puppet show, and for some reason I'm going to act this out as if you can't visualize the puppet show for yourself, but because I feel the need to do something with my hands, I'm going to... So they do a puppet show for the babies, and in one puppet show, the puppet steals something from the other puppet, and the babies are upset. But in the second puppet show, the puppet gives something to the second puppet, an altruistic gesture, and the babies invariably look happy. So what they believed is that from birth, there is moral wiring in the brain. We are set up to seek attachment and to build social connections. That is our chief survival advantage. And if you look through all of the World Happiness Reports, they found that very often, very poor countries that have very little um, social um, wealth, but still have strong village connections, strong interpersonal uh, connections, strong family systems, that their happiness levels are far higher than countries that are very wealthy but don't have strong social and family bonds. It's my contention, learning from this, that um, one, karma works implicitly, not explicitly. Implicitly means you feel it, not necessarily as a boost, 
but as a feeling, an emotional feeling of benefit when you act in a way that's beneficial. And secondly, as the Buddha taught, karma takes time. Now why is this? One, the parts of the brain that reward you for doing things that are to your benefit alone, that improve your chances of survival, they will reward you with dopamine, which is very short and very quick. And it uses fast neural circuits from the midbrain to the left hemisphere. And you'll be very aware when you've done something that makes you feel uh, secure. When you've gotten a raise, when somebody says you're, you looked swell tonight in your new outfit, when uh, you uh, uh, get a career boost, or when somebody, when a bunch of people love things you post and all the, the, the likes on Facebook soar beyond your wildest expectation, you will have a wonderful neural boost of dopamine which will last all 20 minutes, the same 20 minutes that a hit of crack or a shopping binge or eating a nice slice of cake will provide. Dopamine is a wonderful, wonderful uh, neurotransmitter that makes us uh, have sensations of power and makes us have excited thoughts of invulnerability and strength and it goes away. And it's very often replaced with stress and cortisol. On the other hand, actions that are altruistic, generous, beneficial to others, that take care of others, those neural circuits are slow. They trudge along. They're right hemispheric. They release serotonin. Serotonin is not something that anybody snorts. People crave things. They snort, they shoot up, they do anything to get dopamine. Nobody, nobody gets addicted to serotonin. We do, of course, uh, provide serotonin reuptake inhibitors to keep serotonin present synaptically when people have depression. And that's because in our culture, very often people tend to, due to poor social bonds, disconnection, social anxieties, and so forth, have low serotonin. And so we want to keep it present, but people don't get high off of it. It's a very long-lasting but slow-to-arise neural presence. My understanding of karma is that it works the exact same way. It works on slow neural circuits that arise not as thoughts and not as sensations of invulnerability but as feelings, emotional states of well-being and esteem and a sense of connectedness that make us feel warm and safe. Let's look at what the Buddha says in the Devadaha Sutta Whatever feelings a person experiences were caused by their past actions. A direct causal link between our past actions and our feelings. Mahasi Sayadaw, the great uh, founder of the progress of insight approach to practice, said, intention lies at the heart of karma, but the reaper is feeling." The way we get the results of our actions is through feelings, the way we feel, not the way we think, 
not some great sense of invulnerability, but a subtle emotional shift. In the Abhidhamma, the emotional mind is stated to be the recipient of karma. The activities of the mind in terms of thought and intention causes the succeeding states of mind. Whether we are restless or not restless, whether we feel fear or no fear, whether we feel anger or no anger. The idea here is that it takes time, but we will sense an emotional shift as the long-term result of our connectedness and our pro-social uh, altruistic behaviors. But over time, the more we act selfishly, the more we prioritize careers over connections, the more we prioritize financial wealth over relationships, the more we prioritize our own survival over our, the survival of self and others connected, the more we will feel negative emotions. Now, some people hear this and they go, okay, well that sounds interesting, but what about samsara, that whole rebirth cycle? Isn't the entire point of Buddhism to end the samsaric cycle of rebirth? Interestingly enough, uh, wonderful contemporary teachers and 20th century teachers like Ajahn Buddhadasa said, the more you understand the Dharma correctly, you will see there is no rebirth in terms of multiple lives and that we can understand samsara in terms of our own life, our constant seeking for something to fix and solve us externally to make us happy, our constant quest of material success, approval, sensual pleasures, seeking to buy something or acquire happiness or accumulate it, and all of that just leads again and again and again to disappointment and more thirst. For me, this psychological interpretation of karma still provides refuge. I deeply believe that people who act selfishly who cause harm will suffer. I don't wish it upon them, I just know it will happen. I deeply believe that the human mind is wired not just to survive, but also to reward and punish us emotionally for how well we treat other people. Also, karma in this sense provides balance. The Buddha posited four Brahma Viharas, the first three are always about connecting with other people. They're goodwill, compassion, and appreciation. But the fourth, he said, is karma. And in this teaching of the Brahma Viharas, karma is the part that allows us to detach when relationships are no longer working. When we've tried so hard to mend a friendship, or we've tried to establish connection with family members who are abusive, or we've tried to uh, repair damaged relationships with exes or co-workers and no matter what we try it doesn't work karma is that teaching that allows us to see that something in their past or our past is not allowing us to connect and it's time to let go and direct our efforts elsewhere so karma is also the permission to know that it's time to move on Karma is demanding. 
It asks that we remove blame fallacies. The blame fallacy is that someone else has caused all my suffering. It removes the fallacy of spurious generalization, such as everybody else does it, so why can't I? Everybody else cheats. Everybody else cuts corners. Everybody else lies. Everybody else avoids mending difficult, you know, uh, or apologizing or forgiving when it's possible. So why should I do that? It asks that we focus on our own actions because those will be the ones that determine our happiness or our lack thereof. So to see karma in action, the key is to stay patient, to slow down, to wait, and to see the long-term felt repercussions of actions. When we reflect over time on things we've said, the times we've vented, do we still feel good about it? When we reflect over time about the cut-off relationships, the, um, the hastily said words, the uh, vindictive remarks, do we still feel good? Or when we reflect over time about the occasions where we were absolutely gener generous and selfless, even though it was difficult, the times when we showed up, for people who were suffering. To give you a hint, what I think you'll find out is there was a wonderful study. And in his study, he gave a group of people $10. And he asked half of them to spend $10 on themselves and the other half to spend $10 to give it to somebody else. And six months later, the people who spent it on themselves, what did you spend the money on and how do you feel about it? And none of them could remember. But the people he asked to spend the $10 on someone else, to give it to someone else, could remember why they chose, how they felt about it, what the occasion was, and they still felt a neural boost. 